0: to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap. Your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, August 18th. I'm your host, Mike Mahery. Thanks for tuning in. Everything's fine. Great, in fact. Nothing to see here. The economy, as one analyst put it, is chugging along. The looming recession? That's been canceled. Inflation is on the run. It's lollipops and rainbows out there. Here's a few headlines for you IMF survey, soft landing ahead for U.S. economy. Fed chairman projects soft landing for U.S. economy. U.S. economy on track for soft landing, according to the Dallas Fed. U.S. inflation pressures are easing, and economy should manage a soft landing. Oh, by the way, All of those headlines are from 2007. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are reliving the good old days of 07. So enjoy it while it lasts. In all seriousness, this is looking more and more like uh, 2007 Redux. Everything looks fine on the surface. The mainstream is convinced everything is fine. All of the problems out there are contained But if you look closely, there are all kinds of problems that are bubbling just under the surface. But for now... Everybody is pretty much ignoring those things. In fact, the mainstream is puffed up with optimism. The biggest concern out there seems to be that with the economy plugging along, the Fed may have to raise interest rates even higher to continue driving price inflation closer to the mythical 2% target. You see, the Fed is desperate to slow down the economy. They want to destimulate in order to rein in price inflation. They want to see some more unemployment out there. Uh, They want some bad news, but since they're not getting it, Every bit of good economic data that seems remotely positive leads to dollar strength, and that inevitably means falling gold. For instance, this week, we had uh, retail sales numbers that came in better than expected, and that put tailwinds behind gold. In fact, it's been a pretty brutal few weeks for gold. We've now dropped below the $1,900 an ounce level. And if you look at the charts, the decline in gold correlates almost perfectly with increasing dollar strength. And... This kind of uh, got me thinking. So, out of curiosity, I went back and looked at the price of gold back in 2006 and 2007. Now, keep in mind, the Fed was raising interest rates up until June 2006. That was when rates peaked at 5.25%, roughly where we are now. The first rate cut wasn't until September 2007. Now, in June of 06, gold was bouncing around the $600 an ounce range. By August 2007, it was still bouncing around in the $600 an ounce range. Uh, You would see it fall down into the fives every once in a while. Um, maybe got into seven once or twice, but pretty much stayed range-bound around that $600 an ounce level. It didn't actually start going up until that rate cut in the fall of 2007. Now, by March 2008, gold hit $1,000 an ounce. Of course, it really went on a tear after the financial crisis uh, in the fall of 2008. So, what we saw was we saw uh, kind of what we're seeing now, range-bound gold, uh, as the Fed was raising interest rates, and even when they stopped raising interest rates. And then when they started cutting interest rates, the price of gold started to climb. Uh, we saw a little bit of a decline as the financial crisis unfolded, and then when the Fed launched QE and cut rates to zero, well, we all know what happened with gold at that point. So the point I'm driving at here is, is what we're seeing in the gold market right now, That even looks similar to the period before the Great Recession. So, again, uh, it's almost like this 2006-2007 redux. Uh, So many things are eerily similar to what we saw then. Now, of course, I've talked about the parallels on the show before, mainly pointing out that just because we haven't seen a crash yet doesn't mean one isn't coming. And, you know, I think a lot of people have gotten complacent because the Fed hiked rates and nothing happened. I mean, nothing really bad. I mean, yeah, we got the, the bank crisis thing, but everybody thinks that's done and over with. Uh, so, yeah, everybody's kind of decided, well, we they got away with it. Um so, last week, I ran across a podcast featuring economists Bob Murphy and Jonathan Newman. Uh, this was the Human Action podcast produced by the Mises Institute. And Murphy and Newman did a really good job of explaining why a soft landing isn't likely, despite what everybody's saying, because the recession's canceled, right? We talked about that last week. Um even the Fed economists are now saying, "Oh, we're going to avoid the recession." So that—that's the—that's the narrative. But uh, Murphy and Newman did a really good job of explaining why uh, a hard landing is still more likely than not. So um, they spent a good bit of time in the podcast pointing out some of the parallels between the run-up to the Great Recession and today. I wrote a synopsis of the podcast and uh, also embedded the video in an article that's over at shiftgold.com news. I'll link to that over on the show notes page if you'd like to listen to the entire discussion. That's about a 45-minute or hour um, podcast, and I highly recommend listening to it because they dig into uh, some of the data and explain some of the economics uh, behind their reasoning. But, you know, one thing that uh, Newman said, I think, really captures the mainstream mindset. He said, they're jumping the gun on this, meaning jumping the gun on declaring... The recession dead. Uh, He said they don't really have a good reason why they have this view that there's going to be a soft landing, except they haven't seen a hard landing yet. Therefore, we must be having a soft landing. I think he's absolutely right. You know, in our microwave world, people have a hard time conceptualizing that, you know, sometimes things happen slowly, or as the saying goes, they happen slowly and then all at once. But we don't have a lot of patience here in, in 2023. Uh, we don't have much of a long view of anything. Uh, we expect instantaneous results. And, of course, with an economy, you never get instantaneous results. Um, and things are unpredictable because the economy is so big and there's so many factors influencing it. Um Anyway, another parallel from the uh, 2006-2007 time period that they pointed out is that even after interest rates peaked, unemployment kept falling for a year. So, What we've heard constantly for months is that uh, the job market has remained robust. Unemployment has stayed low. Uh, The job market is still hot. Even with these interest rate hikes, the the job market is still plugging along. and Everybody's shocked by this because these high interest rates should have collapsed the job market if you believe the standard Keynesian-Phillips curve. economic theory. And again, uh, Newman and Murphy get into that in the podcast explaining the whole Phillips curve thing. But uh, we've not seen that. We've seen unemployment stay low. We've seen the job market remain hot. We're still seeing jobs creative and every, and created, and everybody is surprised by that. But the fact of the matter is, if you go back to 2006-2007, uh, the Fed raised rates, and we did not see an instantaneous softening of the labor market. So, this isn't unprecedented, right? Uh, Even after rates peaked, as I said, unemployment kept falling for a year. Now, here's how Murphy summed it up. He said, in other words, all the reasons that right now they're saying, okay, we're out of the woods, we get a soft landing, that was true back then as well. It wasn't that unemployment started rising rapidly. No, they said, okay, we raised rates steadily over the course of a while here. We raised them from 1% all the way up to 5.25%. Now, this is 06-07. They said, we're starting to get CPI under control. This housing bubble is starting to get a little under control. Everything seems great. So, my question is, would it be fair to say that as of late 2006, that the Fed had achieved a soft landing and gotten the housing bubble under control? Most people would say no. They had sown the seeds for the worst crisis since the 1930s, and likewise, right now, the data are eerily similar to that, and yet everyone is running around talking about a soft landing. So... Kind of with this in mind, I want to cover a few things today that are bubbling under the surface that should raise eyebrows, that indicate that everything's not really fine. That the problems haven't been solved, uh, and that seems to be the mantra. You know, we had this pandemic, and we had the government shutdowns, and we had all these problems, and then we had inflation, which wasn't transitory, and and now the Fed is taking action, and everything's good. Well, no, everything's not good. And if you look closely at some of these things bubbling under the surface, it indicates that the structural rot that the Fed has created over the last decade plus with artificially low interest rates, quantitative easing, uh, easy money flooding into the economy, these problems are not gone, all right? They're not solved. We're just kind of in this calm before the storm. So let's start with the banking crisis. You remember that, right? Three banks collapsed back in March. Now everybody thinks it's fine. That happened, and then they fixed it. Well, the truth of the matter is the financial crisis is still bubbling under the surface. I talked about Moody's downgrading the credit rating of a bunch of banks last week um, in a broader discussion about all of the debt that has been introduced into the economy due to these decades of easy money. Well, this week, I stumbled across this little tidbit. Banks borrowed an additional $3.7 billion from the Federal Reserve's bank bailout program in July. And get this, there are currently $106.9 billion in outstanding loans in the Bank Term Funding Program, BTFP for short. That's the bailout that they... uh, put together after the collapse of those banks. That's the highest amount outstanding in the BTFP since the thing was created. Now, as you'll recall, after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, the Fed created the BTFP, and this mechanism allows banks to easily access capital quote, to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all of their depositors. So, in other words, if a bank is struggling, it created this program they can borrow money and shore up uh, whatever problems they might have. Now, in practice, the BTFP offers loans of up to one year to banks, savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions that pledge U.S. Treasuries, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities uh, along with other qualifying assets as collateral. Now here's the beauty of this program. Banks can borrow against their assets at par, at face value. Now that, by the way, is a sweetheart deal that you and I could never get. Nobody is going to loan you money against collateral that's worth less than the loan that you're taking out. You know, it's an exclusive club and we ain't in it. Anyway, according to the Federal Reserve's statement when they set this whole thing up, quote, the BTFP will be an additional source of liquidity against high against high-quality securities, eliminating an institution's need to quickly sell those securities in times of stress. So, in other words, when a bank has a bond portfolio that is devalued because interest rates have been hiked up, and they can't sell those bonds without taking on a huge loss, they can go to the BTFP and they can pledge those those bonds at face value and borrow money and shore things up for at least a year, so they can at least kick the can down the road for a year. And this solved a big problem for a lot of banks, right? Um, You know, kind of uh, to give you the background, as the Fed jacked up interest rates to fight inflation, um, it has decimated the bond market, and we're still seeing that decimation continue today. In fact, uh, I read earlier this week that the 10-year Treasury uh, hit the highest level since 2008 uh, this week. So, Bonds are getting really hammered uh, as bond prices fall, yields go up, interest rates go up. And with interest rates rising so quickly, banks were not able to adjust their bond holdings. So as a result, many banks have become undercapitalized on paper. In other words, their bond portfolio value has dropped. um, And and so if they were to need to sell those, they can't sell them for what they're worth or for what they paid for them. So they're undercapitalized now. At least on paper, they're unrealized losses. Um, The banking sector was buried under about $620 billion in unrealized losses um, at the end of 2022. And this was according to data that was released at the end of the year by the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So the BTFP gives banks a way out, right? or at least the opportunity, as I said, to kick the can down the road. Uh, Instead of selling bonds that have dropped in value at a big loss, the banks can go to the Fed, borrow the money at the bond's face value. Uh, If you go back to when they launched this program in the very first week of the BTFP, banks borrowed about $11.9 billion from the program. Now, banks also borrowed more than $300 billion from the already established Fed discount window. Now, the dynamics here are kind of interesting. The discount window, it's been around for years. It's basically a way for banks to access cash quickly uh, for short-term needs. To borrow through the window, banks have to post collateral at face value, and uh, the loans come with a relatively high interest rate. Uh, Currently, it's at about 5.5%. So, the uh, the discount window has been around for a while. It's kind of a permanent bank bailout, if you will. But the BTFP was created. It's actually easier for banks to access and cheaper, um, and and the uh, the rules for accessing money through that are less. So discount window borrowing surged in the weeks after the class collapse of SVC and signature banks, but the balances were quickly paid back down and uh, discount borrowing has returned to normal levels. And uh, in fact, they're a little bit below those normal levels. But banks have actually continued to borrow from that BTFP bailout program. So again, think about that: uh, eleven point some billion in the first week. We're now up to what I say one hundred and sixty billion dollars. One hundred and six point nine is what's outstanding now. So we've gone from eleven billion in that first week to one hundred and six billion uh, today. Now, the fact that banks are still accessing a bailout program and the pace of borrowing actually ticked up in July, that tells me that the banking sector is not sound, as Jerome Powell keeps telling us. It's pretty shaky. So, what we've seen happen here is the Fed managed to paper over the financial crisis that it created with this bailout program, but all it really did was slap a Band-Aid on it. It has not addressed the underlying issue, and that's the impact of rising interest rates on an economy and a financial system that's addicted to easy money. And as I've talked about before, the real problem isn't that interest rates are rising. the real problem started when the Fed held interest rates so low for so long, and it created all of this debt and it created all of these malinvestment. and it was all incentivized on purpose to stimulate the economy. So now like I said, they're trying to unstimulate it. Um, and this is what you get when you have a bunch of pointy-headed academics trying to micromanage something. Uh, it never works.. But uh, that's a discussion for a a different day. But the reality is, it can't really address those problems. It can't undo the decade-plus of easy money, Um, not without pain. And nobody wants to go through the pain. And as soon as we start to really feel the pain, the Fed inevitably is going to go back to doing what it does best, and that's back to easy money to eliminate the pain. So, really, what it's doing now and all it can do is it's treating the symptoms of the problem. And as I've said many times on this program, even if they can keep the financial crisis at bay with these bailouts, it's only a matter of time before something else breaks in the economy. Now that reminds me of a little bit of a caveat that I wanted to share with you guys. That uh, Bob Murphy and uh, and Newman Jonathan Newman brought up in the podcast. There is one dynamic that is very unlike the run up to the Great Recession, and that's the pandemic. Right, we know that in general, easy money, artificially low interest rates, quantitative easing. Easy money causes malinvestments and it incentivizes debt. Right? That's that's the whole crux of the business cycle. But we don't know to what extent the government shutdowns minimized malinvestments and maybe even cleansed some of those malinvestments out of the economy. Because keep in mind, the government shut everything down. Nobody could do anything. It's hard to have malinvestments when nobody's investing. When nobody's doing anything at all. So, You know, for context, it's important to remember that the economy was teetering before COVID. Remember, we had the big stock market crash in the fall of 2018. Uh, There was a lot of economic data that was weakening. We were seeing a softening in growth. And, of course, the Fed went back to rate cuts and quantitative easing in 2019. So, I've said this before, I think the pandemic kind of saved the Federal Reserve's bacon. You know, it gave the central bank the excuse to slash rates all the way to zero, to do unprecedented uh, levels of quantitative easing. And since the government shutdowns manufactured a recession, it basically papered over the recession that was coming. They replaced the naturally occurring recession that was coming along simply because they were tightening monetary policy after decades of easy money, and so they could just blame it on the pandemic. And of course, there was a recession. I mean, when the government says you can't do any economic activity, you're going to have a recession. Uh, but it kind of it kind of disrupted the natural flow. We were heading for a recession in 2018-2019. Uh, it was just uh, kind of, again, papered over by the pandemic. So the uh another factor here is that the pandemic also gave people the opportunity to save. We saw a huge increase in savings during the lockdown year um you know because again you can't spend a lot of money when you're locked in your house and Also, a lot of people paid down debt during that time period. They took some of that stimulus money uh, and, and money they weren't spending on other things, and they used it to pay off credit cards and pay down debt. So we saw a big drop in debt. Now since then uh, Americans have gone back to borrowing 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 and we're now at record levels of credit card debt in fact uh, looking at the household debt numbers credit card debt eclipsed a trillion dollars for the first time ever in the uh, second quarter of this year so people have borrowed again but there was a cushion and I think that's part of the reason that we've been able to see the economy kind of keep plugging along because uh, you know there were some reserves there you know you, you imagine if you're uh, dumped out on A desert island by yourself, and uh, you know, there's it's hard to find food Uh, for a while. You're going to be okay if you've you know, if you're fat, you've stored up food in your system, Uh, but eventually it's going to catch up with you, so it's it's kind of a matter of time. But what I'm driving at here is it is possible that an economic downturn might not be as bad as you would assume based on the amount of easy money that was dumped into the economy. That, um, you know, given the the pandemic it might have kind of disrupted the business cycle a little bit and maybe there's not as much malinvestment uh, as there otherwise would have been so maybe we could have a milder recession i mean i guess it's possible we could have no recession at all but i still i don't i don't find that likely um you know I'm inclined to think we're still going to see a deep, protracted recession because of the sheer amount of money that the Fed and the U.S. government created in such a short time. I think whatever uh, uh, impact the lockdowns might have had was certainly mitigated by you know $4 trillion plus of money that was just slammed into uh, the economy in, in basically a year and a half, and If there weren't a lot of malinvestments going on during the pandemic, that money is still sloshing around out there. So we've had plenty of time to build those malinvestments up. And we certainly know that debt levels are Uh, much higher than they were back in 2007-2006. We have unprecedented debt, and we've talked about this before. We talked about it last week on the show. Uh, We've got the federal government's national debt that's now over $32 trillion. We have this incredible amount of consumer debt. Uh, We have all kinds of corporate debt. So, everybody's levered to the hilt. and In this high-interest-rate environment, it just doesn't work, right? It's not sustainable. When you have an economy addicted to easy money, you take the easy money away, it's going to create problems. So, speaking of debt levels, that leads me to another big problem that is just kind of lying there under the rug. In July, your government spent more money paying interest on the national debt than it did on national defense. Now, this may have happened before. I've never seen it since I've been tracking this over the last several years. Um, I I kid you not. The government spent $67 billion on interest payments in July, and it spent $56 billion on defense. In fact, the only spending categories that were bigger than debt service in July were Social Security and Medicare. Healthcare spending was actually equal. They also spent $67 billion on healthcare, Um, but everything else was less other than Social Security and Medicare. That's a lot of money just to pay interest on the debt. To date, the federal government has paid more than half a trillion dollars, $561 billion to be exact, on interest payments in fiscal 2023. And uh, we still have uh, August, the rest of August and September uh, to go in the fiscal year. And of course, the interest expense is just going to escalate. Because every single day, low interest rates bonds, low interest rate bonds are maturing and the Treasury is having to replace them with higher interest rate debt right when bonds mature you know it's not like that debt just goes away the the government has to borrow more money in order to pay the bondholder and uh, so that means they have to basically borrow from somebody else to pay the guy that borrowed uh, you know a year ago or, or whenever it was so you um, As the Treasury is replacing all of this debt with higher interest debt, then of course that's going to drive the interest expense higher um, on top of the increasing interest rates. Um, You know, I wouldn't be shocked at all if the US government spends over $1 trillion just servicing the debt in fiscal 2024, which is really staggering and again, unsustainable. Um, You know, it's not a problem until it is. And of course, you know, rising interest rates aren't just a problem for the U.S. government. Everybody who has debt faces mounting pressures from higher interest payments. And as I've already mentioned, there is a boatload of debt out there. So this is another reason I can't be too sanguine about the the trajectory of the economy. Those debt chickens are coming home to roost. just a matter of time. One final thing before I wrap this show up. The U.S. dollar... Took another body punch this week, and this is another thing that's bubbling under the surface that I don't think a lot of people in the mainstream are paying a lot of attention to. There is a lot of, uh, there's a lot going on that's undermining the dollar. Right? You've got the dollar; it's the reserve currency. The fact that the dollar is the reserve currency gives the U.S. economic power that it has, that dollar dominance is eroding. And we saw one other, you know, yet another little chunk taken out of the uh, dollar hegemony uh, this week when India and the United Arab Emirates settled an oil trade without converting local currencies to dollars. Uh, That was the first time it happened uh, last Monday. Um, So India's top refiner basically paid for oil That they bought from the UAE. They paid for that in rupees. Now, the oil sale was actually the first after the two countries entered a memorandum of understanding, uh, often known as an MOU, uh, back in July. And the deal established a local currency settlement system, so LCS system, Local Currency Settlement, and this is facilitated by the Reserve Bank of India and the Central Bank of the UAE. The system basically allows these two countries to engage in bilateral trade, trade with each other, using the rupee and the uh, dirham. dirham, I don't know how to say that word, uh, the uh, UAE currency, it's D-I-R-H-A-M, dirham. dirham. According to a statement by the Federal Reserve of India, the agreement will facilitate, quote, seamless cross-border transactions and payments and foster greater economic cooperation. Uh, Meanwhile, it's also uh, getting the dollar out of the uh, whole system. Interestingly, the first test of the LCS involved a sale of 25 kilograms of gold from a UAE gold exporter to a buyer in India, uh, And this was for about 128.4 million rupees, which uh, is about 1.54 million U.S. dollars. So, if this trend of dollarless transactions expands to other countries, the minimization of the dollar in the global oil trade, that's going to be bad news for the U.S. You know, because I can't emphasize enough how important the petrodollar is to the U.S. economy. So, As a way of quick explanation, as it stands, the majority of global oil sales are priced in dollars. This ensures a constant demand for the greenback since every country needs dollars to buy oil. Right? Everybody needs dollars because all of the oil in the world, or virtually all of the oil historically, or at least since the 70s, has been priced in dollars. So everybody needs to have dollars so they can facilitate oil trade. Um, and of course, this helps support the U.S. government's borrow and spend policies, along with its massive trade deficits. As long as the world needs dollars for oil, it guarantees demand for dollars, right? People need the dollars. That means the Fed can keep printing dollars to monetize the debt, because it'll be absorbed and sucked up by the global economy that depends on the dollar to kind of make the engine run. Um A Zero Hedge article, and this was uh, a while back, but they did a pretty good job of explaining uh, the petrodollar. Uh, Quote, one of the core staples of the past 40 years and an anchor propping up the dollar's reserve status was a global financial system based on the petrodollar. This was a world in which oil producers would sell their product to the U.S. and the rest of the world for dollars, which they would then recycle the proceeds in dollar-denominated assets and while investing in dollar-denominated markets explicitly prop up the USD as the world reserve currency and in the process backstop the standing of the U.S. as the world's undisputed financial superpower um, so you know that's an interesting point that they make because everybody's using dollars it increases demand for dollar assets if you have dollars you might as well buy things in dollars so things like US treasuries things like uh, US stocks all of these dollars are they take them and they invest them in, uh, in, in these various dollar-denominated assets. And that's why Peter Schiff keeps saying you don't want to be heavy into dollar-denominated assets because we're seeing this, uh, this erosion of dollar power. And you have to think that at some point, the dollar is going to fall off of its perch as the reserve currency. Now, you know, that might sound like some kind of weird conspiracy theory stuff, but I mean, it's happened over and over again in history, right? Uh, All empires collapse. Uh, You know, if you go back to the 1700s, everything was pounds. It was the British, the British money system, the British military, they were predominant in the world. Now Britain is kind of irrelevant in the world, right? I think the U.S. is going to become irrelevant in the world at some point, and I don't know what's going to replace it. Uh, you know, we may see some kind of uh, uh, situation where there are multiple reserve currencies, uh, or where you see more trade just in uh, local currencies. We could eventually go back to a gold-based system. It's hard to tell, um, but I think it's safe to say that we can't count on the dollar being the king of the mountain forever. So, when you boil it all down, de-dollarization would drastically diminish uh, U.S. economic power, and it would wreck the country's economy. So... You know, you've got all of these things going on, right? You've got uh, the, the the financial crisis. You've got high interest rates in a world that depends on low interest rates. Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of economic problems in China, which could ripple over. We're seeing oil prices increase. A lot of stuff is going on under the surface. Things we've discussed today that should make you pause. When you hear people talking about, oh, everything's fine, you know, the economy's great, everything's contained, don't worry, soft landing, blah, blah, blah. You should at least question it. I mean, I could be wrong, too. You should question me. You should question everybody. Um, but I think there are things that the mainstream misses because of its predisposition, because of its marriage to Keynesian economics, which I think a lot of it's garbage, and and because of short-sightedness. Uh, I think you should look at these other things and take them into consideration, and maybe not be quite as optimistic as uh, you know the mainstream would have you to be. But it's hard, right? It's hard to even be aware that a lot of this stuff is going on. I mean, most people aren't. Most people aren't listening to this podcast. They aren't listening to Peter Schiff. They're listening to CNBC and Fox Business, and they're the ones that are you know telling you everything is fine. Um, so it keeps a lot of these things behind a the curtain. They're hidden. Uh, but the fact of the matter is you've got inflation. You've got an existential threat to the dollar status. You've got an economy that has been completely jacked up by the Fed, by monetary policy, not just now, but for decades. And, you know, ultimately, this is all bad for the dollar. It seems like everything is lining up for a major dollar collapse. But since it's just kind of going on beside the behind the scenes. Nobody's really paying attention. And, you know, again, gold is kind of just floundering around, just like it did back in 2006, 2007, fluctuating uh, within a relatively tight range, even falling uh, because everybody's convinced we don't need gold. I think you need gold, and I personally see this as a buying opportunity—not just for gold, but also for silver. I wrote an article that I'll link to in the show notes page about uh, how silver is drastically underpriced given the dynamics. Um, you can look at a lot of factors with silver—the silver-gold ratio—it's way out of whack. Uh, it's it's gold is or silver is way undervalued compared to gold and the real issue with silver is the supply and demand dynamics you've got uh, a tight supply Without a lot of prospects for supply to drastically increase, and yet you're seeing a massive increase in demand for silver because of the green energy stuff. And like it or not, the green energy stuff ain't going anywhere. You know, even if we go into a recession, the government is still going to prop up this green energy stuff. So there's a lot of demand for silver. uh, There's a shrinking supply. Uh, I think there's great buying opportunities right now for both gold and silver. And if you're interested in learning more about that, or maybe even buying, uh, striking while the iron is hot, as they say, I highly recommend talking to a shift gold precious metal specialist. You can call 888 gold one sixty, or you can email info at shiftgold.com, or you can just go to shiftgold.com and go to the getting started tab, and there is an opportunity there just to chat right there online with a precious metal specialist, and uh, you know ask questions, uh, let them know what your investment goals are. If you're skeptical. Raise those questions. They're not afraid to answer the hard questions. Um, and, and maybe buying gold and silver is for you. So, I recommend talking to those folks today. And with that, that is a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of the things I've talked about and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. You should check it every day. There are news stories every weekday. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Cold Wrap podcast. We're on most of the major podcasting platforms, also on YouTube. Uh, Links to those on the show notes page, also links to our social media channels. You can email me, himmeharry, at shipgold.com. Love to hear from folks. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you have a fantastic week. See ya!